Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies, I'm J.F. Martel. In Technic and Magic, the Reconstruction of Reality, the philosopher Federico Campagna argues that we moderns have exhausted the reality system we devised at the dawn of our age, a system he calls Technic. Technic has only one goal, to reduce all things to language by naming, tagging, measuring, and quantifying them, turning every parcel of the physical and psychic universe into a unit defined by its position in the system. The result has been the erasure of the mere suchness of things, the singularity of things simply existing as they are. To replace a worldview that is now revealing its endemic nihilism, Campagna proposes magic, a way of seeing that re-establishes a balance between the measurable and the ineffable. What follows is a discussion of technic and magic that Phil and I had last week, and I am recording this intro at a very late hour after presenting a lecture for the neurolearning course that Phil and I are doing together, Weirding. You can look that up at neurolearning.com. So I am very tired. And what I just did was simply read you the summary I wrote for the website. That's as much as I can give you today. However, I am not so tired as to omit the obligatory Patreon pitch. Um, I want to take this opportunity to thank everyone who supports Weird Studies. We couldn't do this without you. It's for real. And we appreciate um, all the support we get. If you are not a Patreon member, please consider joining and supporting Weird Studies. Um, we work very hard on each episode, and we really appreciate the reciprocity that um, Patreon supporters have founded in themselves to bring into being. So. Without further ado, episode 134 on Federico Campagna's Technic and Magic. Enjoy. Finally, we get to it. Finally. Everything's been building up to this. Yeah. From yeah, Garmin Bosia to Technic and Magic. That's right. And uh, after today, you can just stop listening to the podcast because we'll have sorted it all out. We'll figure it all out. Yeah. I have the feeling it's the opposite that's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. This is one of those books where I would not be surprised if we got to the end. We'd be like, we need another show on this. But we'll see. We'll see how much we can get done in one day. I have a gambit, an opening gambit. Okay. You know how I love a gambit. You do love a gambit. I'm going to share screen with you, and I want us to watch a video clip on YouTube of Bill Hicks, great comedian, 
doing a, a, a kind of a rant on marketers. Oh, on marketing. I, I know that scene. I know that bit very well. You want to watch it anyways? <laughs> We're going to watch it anyways, because okay. memory isn't as good as actually watching it. So I know what all the marketing people are thinking right now, too. Oh, you know what Bill's doing? He's going for that anti-marketing dollar. That's a good market. He's very smart. <laughs> oh, man, I am not doing that. You fucking evil scumbags. Oh, you know what Bill's doing now? He's going for the righteous indignation dollar. That's a big dollar. A lot of people are feeling that indignation. We've done research. Huge market. He's doing a good thing. God damn it, I'm not doing that, you scumbags. Quit putting a goddamn dollar sign on every fucking thing on this planet. Ooh, the anger dollar. Huge. Huge in times of recession. Giant market. Bill's very bright to do that. God, I'm just caught in a fucking web. Ooh, the trapped dollar. Huge dollar. Huge dollar. <laughs> I love it. And I go to it all the time when I am trying to think about like the peculiar airlessness of life and capitalism, the sort of, you know, when Frederick Jameson says it is easier to imagine the end of the world than to imagine the end of capitalism. That is an expression that has got wide circulation. And I think it does because there's a kind of an airless trapped feeling, a suffocating feeling that the system we're a part of has gotten it so that our very utterances, our very lives themselves are the gears and the engines, the drivers that keep this larger machine going, where every possible thing you can say about the situation in which you find yourself becomes itself drawn back into that system, yeah. a kind of totalizing system. You know, and he says, like, oh, I'm trapped in a web here. Ooh, that trap dollar. Yeah. That, to me, is kind of the crux of his bit. Yeah. And I thought it was a good place to start. I thought of that bit several times as I was reading this book, particularly on 93. Might as well just start in some arbitrary place where the figure of depression comes up. It comes up a couple of pages earlier in page 88. This kind of stuck in my head when I read that which most stubbornly resists the process of reduction to work operated by technique is turned into a medical problem, that is, into a problem that functions as a not yet accomplished possibility of resolution. And by resolution, we could also mean production, right? Assimilation into a totalizing system of production, whereby each individual is simply kind of a processor, allowing the endless operations of technique and its goal of infinite replication and expansion to further themselves. So Companion writes, yeah, this is turned into a medical problem. This That part of us, that little bit of the human that finds itself trapped in a web that wants to resist this, that is capable of saying no to this, even inarticulately say no, just like, fuck this shit itself gets drawn into Technic as it becomes part of a system of medicalized classification, where the logic of Technic expends itself in a different domain, and you find yourself caught in a web. Again, even in saying, I'm caught in a web, you find yourself then shunted into the part of Technic that deals with people caught in webs. And that is, to me, by no means you know, the synecdoche of this entire book. It's not the kernel from which 
understanding of this entire complicated philosophy may issue, but it seems to me to be kind of an emblematic moment at any rate, that Bill Hicks bit seems to speak to something that Federico Campagna is on about in this book. And I wanted to start there. That's a great place to start because it frames the problem, you know, the problem that warrants a book like this to begin with in Campagna's eyes is we're experiencing right now a metaphysical crisis as the logic of what he calls technic, which is basically the reality system, that's his term, that we've been operating under and that has been operating on us now for several centuries, is exhausting itself. It's coming to the end of its own internal logic. And therefore, the background, so to speak, if you imagine life as a kind of stage, as Shakespeare described it, then there's a backdrop. The backdrop has been torn away and we're in a crisis mode and we need a new reality system. And the Bill Hicks joke really gets to what I do think is the kernel of Campania's critique of our current reality system, which is that in a world of technic, nothing exists in itself. Everything exists purely as a question of its positioning as a unit in a serial system. So like, that's why when the marketer hears the indignation in Bill Hicks's voice and also in what he's saying, they can only interpret that from within the serial system. Yeah. And so, oh, so that's, where does that fit? Where does that fall on the spectrum of profitable marketing endeavors? <laughs> and that's yes. the only way the system can understand anything, including critiques of the system. And so what we need, according to Campagna, is a new reality system. And this term that he uses is more or less equivalent, I think, to what you know Foucault called epistem, right? A kind of like overarching metaphysical construal through which we interpret reality. And what he's proposing as an alternative, and he, he does, I think the phrase does come up a few times, an alternative reality system yeah. is what he calls magic. So technique and magic. With a capital M. With a capital M. Yeah. Technique and magic each are ostentatiously capitalized to give you the sense that these are not just not just any old set of ideas, but cosmogonic principles. Exactly. You know, world building and world explaining principles. And this is where I think the problems I have with this book start, but I will, I'll wait on that. Ooh, I can't wait. Yeah. So, but let's go through. I should say in advance that I am very impressed by this book. Oh, yeah. The first thing we should say to everyone is buy this book. If you're into philosophy, Contemporary philosophy, but also if you're into the esoteric tradition and how it interfaces with modern philosophy and modern social critique and theory, you've got to read this book. It's absolutely mandatory reading. Yeah. He, uh, Campagna, I should say, right from the start, is absolutely brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah. yeah. And whatever criticisms we have of the book are the criticisms of I don't want to say a narcissism of small differences, but we're definitely playing in a very the same zone that he's playing in. So obviously the differences will feel really big to us, but the spirit of the book is so aligned with so much of what we've done and said on this show that, I mean, it's, it, it's a fantastic book and it's, it will be appreciated, I think, by people who like weird studies very much. And if you are, you know, a very secular sort of person who 
maybe you just stumbled on this podcast and you're still kind of on the fence, like, well, you know, they talk about some things I like, but I don't know about all this stuff with tarot cards and magic and whatnot. That's fine. And then such a person might be looking at this book and being like, should I bother to read this? And my answer to you is yes. Absolutely. This is a book that I think can be profitably read by, for example, the kind of culture theoretical people, uh, people who are super into what is called theory in the academy, what might be called philosophy under other circumstances, but people who are interested in social theory of one sort or another. This book will give you tons of nutrition, put some meat on those bones, philosophically speaking. If you are somebody who is maybe a little further along in questioning some of the root reality structures that have led you to whatever point you are in your life, mm -hmm. and you're wondering if there is a book out there that's a work of cultural theory uh, or a work of sort of continental philosophy, but that maybe does more than just tell you some kind of clever analysis of a situation and goes beyond that to actually telling you how to unfuck your life, philosophically speaking, to some extent, buy this book, because this book to some extent does that. I would also recommend it to people who are into psychology, psychotherapists, or people like it, it has, I found, a very helpful perspective on the mental unease, let's say, of our times. And so I think could be put to profitable use by people who work with, you know, who people who work in those fields. Sorry, I Some of you. his insights about the plague of depression. It is well known that there's a, just a plague of depression in weird societies, Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. Weird acronym, weird, weird in that sense. There is a kind of a, an epidemic of mental health, a mental health crisis. And you can say, well, you know, we all got our screws shaken loose by COVID and so on, but clearly there's something else going on, some feeling that the world that we are in is on some deep way profoundly inimical to us. And no matter what specific adjustment we might make, move to a better neighborhood, get married, get divorced, whatever, somehow that is just rearranging the deck chairs on the deck of the Titanic, that you're just making basically decorative changes to a structure that is radically compromised exactly there's something deeply rotten in the state of affairs like i think that there is some real philosophical insight into the roots of this psychological malaise so i strongly agree with you there yeah exactly so all this to say this is a great book read this book the full title is Technic and Magic, The Reconstruction of Reality. So that gives you a sense of what the goal is. And um, I'm going to start a little bit of a summary of the book. And Phil, you can jump in at any time and pick up or whatever. Yeah. So as we were saying at the beginning, there's a crisis. The backdrop has fallen. And we feel that reality itself is coming apart. Okay. Campania comments on the feeling of unreality that many people are experiencing now, which would be at the root of a lot of the depression. And so there's a need to rethink, and also there are all the crises, the systemic crises going on right now, the ecological crisis, the financial crisis, the social, political crises that 
plague all the industrialized nations. You know, if we were sitting at the console of, of spaceship Earth, all the red lights would be beeping right now kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so... Um, Buckminster Fuller is getting himself to an escape pod. <laughs> exactly. He's gone already. He's gone. He's sitting with like C-3PO and R2-D2 going, what the fuck? Getting out of here. Um, <laughs> That's a great metal image. So given that we are in this situation, we can't find a solution from within the ontological structure that created this crisis. We have to think of something else. We have to find what he calls an alternative reality system. So the way that the book is structured is that the first half of the book is him describing what he calls technic, which is the current operating system. The second half of the book, he rebuilds reality because at the end of the technic section, there's nothing left, literally nothing left of reality. So he rebuilds it under the banner of magic and magic could be our way out of the nightmare of technic. And he adopts an emanationist model. And I think that's really important. He adopts an emanationist model to structure these things. Emanationism is a modern term we use to describe certain modes of classical, philosophical, and metaphysical and mystical thought, such as like the most important one, I guess, in the Western tradition would be Plotinus, right? And Well, then there's also Kabbalah. Yeah, but Kabbalah was a Neoplatonic most histories of Kabbalah date it around the same time as the Neoplatonists and all that in the Mediterranean basin, like in that area. So yes, well, yeah, absolutely. But historical priority is not, I think, the primary thing here. The question is, what are those traditions that have survived and flourished enough that their view of reality, their reality models have succeeded and sort yeah, of like, yeah. I don't know, changing people's minds. And you got to acknowledge that... Uh, Kabbalah. Yes, Kabbalah. The the heavyweight champ when it comes to that shit. Sufism, Kabbalah. But what I, okay, I'm wrong word. What I meant is the, let's call it the main founder, pioneer of Western emanationism would be Plotinus. Plotinus himself operating within a Neoplatonic tradition that was already several hundred years old when he worked. And I guess we could trace all this back to Plato. But the point of this in, in emanationism is that you have a principle, a fundamental self-existing transcendent principle from which all other principles and all tiers of the real emanate, right? And so you have like a source of light, let's call being light, let's equate being with light. So you have the source of light in Plotinus, that's the one, and the one emanates being. And as you get further and further from the one, there's a degradation in things as you go from the one to the life in this world of becoming down here. As you go from the above right. to the below, there's a loss of intensity and more and more mixtures come into play and that and sort Campania's of thing. And Campania's language, he's, by the way, I think Campania is an excellent writer. Mm-hmm. And he really sells the emanationist gimmick. I shouldn't call it a gimmick, but like he really sells it in the way he writes about the hypostasis. So a hypostasis is a successive sort of place that that originating power or potentiality or just capital B being, it's the hypostases are the places where that fundamental energy is reflected to and at each one, it dissipates a little bit of its force. It spends a little bit of its force. And so philosophers have been using 
specular imagery, like imageries of reflection, mirroring, heavenly bodies, uh, and so on, to kind of get across a somewhat abstract idea. So I will just read you a few lines from Campania's account of techniques, multiple hypostases. For the first hypothesis of technique is absolute language. This is the originary force of technique. And we'll talk about what absolute language means in a little bit. But he writes at the head of this section, at the heart of technique's form, radiating like a merciless sun, stands the first principle and first hypothesis, absolute language. Okay, so then when we get to the second hypothesis, measure, he writes, from the first hypothesis, like rays out of a sun, the second hypothesis emanates. You know, like rays out of a sun. So like absolute language is the sun. And this is like the first emanation, the first rays out of that sun. So then we get to the third hypothesis unit of which Campania writes, out of the second hypothesis, like a gleam from the reflecting surface of the moon, the third one emanates the unit. And that's really cool because, okay, first we had the sun itself, then we had the beams, the rays coming out of the sun. Now we have the first object that one of those beams strikes and reflects off of. What happens in the fourth? The fourth hypothesis, the abstract general entity. Ooh, can't wait to talk about that. He writes, the fourth hypothesis emanated from the third, like a beam of light filtered through a cloud. So now we are having this light that starts off as this fierce, lidless, undimmed, unmediated force of absolute language in each successive hypothesis as it reflects more, as it works its way through more and more matter, more and more stuff, as more and more things happen to it, it becomes increasingly degraded and the painful brilliance of the original light becomes something dimmer, a glow seen through a cloud. And then finally, when we get to the fifth hypothesis, life as vulnerability, he writes, out of the fourth hypothesis, like a sinking light reflected by the surface of the sea, shines out the fifth and last one, life as vulnerability. And he writes at this level, the energy of the first principle of absolute language finally extinguishes itself, but not without a last shimmer, which announces the possibility for technique's cosmogonic chain to restart anew, all of which is uh, both in his language, he's very effective at giving you images to understand this idea of how ideas, main ideas and subordinate ideas relate to one another using this emanationist model. And he also is showing us very classically and properly how in such models, the last becomes the first. We talked about this, in fact, in the Trash Dratum episode, yeah. how the dingleberry down at the bottom of the tree of life, Malkut, the earth, where it's just all fucking bullshit down here. It's all technic. <laughs> Yet there is in the seed of that very kind of distance from the first emanation, the possibility of the whole system popping into existence again, where the last becomes the first. Yeah. There's some interesting consequences of that philosophically that I don't feel prepared to get into now because we're still kind of doing yeah, yeah. Uh, let's just we're, we're doing exposition and I and I didn't want to interrupt your exposition too much JF but I d I wanted to point out like how Campania does actually make it easier on us understanding this arrangement of ideas by 
giving us something that's almost narrative, yeah. you know, pictorial and almost narrative, yeah. which is an interesting way to organize ideas in a philosophical work. He takes the central, the main principles of technique, which for him are, as Phil said there when he was reading this passages, absolute language, measure, unit, the abstract general entity, and life as vulnerability. So these, these are the basic principles by which we can understand what's going on in technic. But he arranges them hierarchically from absolute language to life as vulnerability, and he calls each of these a hypostasis. So it's a particular crystallization of the logic of technic on every level, from the, the most powerful and most primal to the most derived and, um, I guess, emanated, you know? And there's something perverse in what he's doing too, because, and I mean perverse in a technical sense, because traditionally emanationism, all the different forms of emanationism, Kabbalah, Sufism, Christian mysticism, etc., have all agreed on one thing. It's that the fundamental principle, the source of the emanation, can only be, insert the, your favorite term, all meaning the same thing, the one, the good, God. But he's saying, no, 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 here it's technic. So he's basically taking what a traditional emanationist would presumably consider to be a kind of arbitrary contingent notion, an idea of uh, technic, which comes from the Greek techne, which means like craft or doing something or making, and turn that into God, put it in the place of, of God. But the brilliance is that the logic of emanationism here is applied to technic. So in other words, he's saying that the emanationist model, because from what I understood, and I know he wrote a book about this, Federico Campagna is an atheist anarchist. So he's not going to put God at the top. What he's going to do is he's going to... He's also writing an academic book to be read by high-end cultural theory types. And as a marketing move, putting God in that top place, it's not a good move. Yeah. I hope that's not the reason. Al- I hope that's not the reason gonna- you didn't put God in because it's a bad marketing move. But no, I don't mean to. I don't, and I don't mean to be questioning his um, yeah. motives. But at the same time, one of my feelings about this book is that it is much more a creation of the academy, of the worldwide kind of mm. academic guild, which includes both professors and graduate students, and also para academic or ex academic, alt academic. People who just, you know, who did two years of graduate school in cultural studies before they got fed up and got a job, like that whole diffuse world around the academy, that book is written for that crowd. And I don't think you can look at the choices he made. And especially I find myself asking, okay, well, how is this different from like an esoteric book or a book of serious intellectual half written about magic, but written by somebody who is outside that world, someone like Lionel Snell? Mm -hmm. And there are a number of ways that this book manages to keep its guild card. Right. That it is still productively a part of that academic world. And I'm not at all attacking the sincerity or the um, the good faith of Federico Campania in this. I'm simply saying that for a book that is a rhetorical performance of this type in that kind of setting... You don't want a lot of God talk. And so this book is interesting to me as somebody who is a perennial watcher of academia and somebody who spent a lot of time asking what are the possibilities of exactly the kind of alternate reality structure that Campania is talking about and advocating. Like, I always ask, what are the possibilities of such a thing 
being grasped or understood or given a fair hearing within academia. And I think one of the accomplishments of this book is finding a way of doing that in a way that at no point do you read this and think, oh, this is really one of those books, one of the no. books that would appear in a metaphysical shop published by Llewellyn or Weiser. I'm not saying anything about those books, but like if you're a sophisticated reader, you can pick up on the little clues and figure out what part of the bookstore or which bookstore this book is going to go in. This book still retains its guild card and that itself tells you some very interesting things about how it was put together. That's all I meant to say. And it's one of the reasons I think this book is so important, because it really is a kind of Trojan horse in a way. Um, it, uh -huh. It's very yeah. hard to completely and you know offhandedly dismiss if you are someone who is purely ensconced in modern secular cultural theory. It's just hard to dismiss because it's addressing the, the internal problems of that whole paradigm. So one of the brilliant things he does is that in addition to having this emanationist model, he has a kind of like, I guess, triadic model of the, the basic structure that would allow any reality system to function. And that triadic model is, it begins with a duality, essence and existence. He makes much of that. That's an old scholastic um, slash, well, it's an old philosophical dichotomy. Essence and existence are kind of um, two facets of being. And they are opposed to one another to a certain extent. Essence, according to Campania, is what can be said of something. In other words, it's what something is. You know, and Thomas Aquinas would call it quiditas or quiddity, the whatness of things. And existence is what we've called in previous shows hexaity, the thisness, the suchness, the, yeah. the fact of something existing at all. 
right. beyond any, right. anything you can say about it or know about it. So creating a reality system for Campania consists in developing some way to allow essence and existence to coexist. And there are some reality systems that try to basically eliminate one of the two. And Technic is all about eliminating existence. In trying to develop an absolute language able to encompass all possible things, in other words, a language that could tell us what everything is, it must do away with that kernel of being in all things, which is irreducible to language, and that is those things as existence. So it has to eliminate existence. Yes. So that's why Technic is always teetering and always moving towards and recoiling from absolute nothingness. It's always caught in this really strange yeah. pathological relationship with nihilism. So we've mentioned it a few times, and we won't go through all the emanations or hypostases. Just the main one, I think, that's really important to describe a bit is absolute language. What Campania says is that the metaphysical logic of our times is that absolute language is possible and desirable. In other words, we must and we should and we can develop languages that encompass all possibilities, all things. The premise is that truth is representation and representation is truth. Representation is existence. It's the only form of existence we have access to. Something exists if it can be translated into a term used in some serial language. That doesn't need to be like English or French. It could be mathematical language, it could be binary language, it could be any type of computational language. Science itself is a system of codes and languages. So the point is that something exists when it is expressible in a representation, and if it can't do that, it doesn't exist. That's the basic idea. And a representation, we should say, that is inflected by measurement and unit. Exactly. Well, those are the following hypotheses. So right. what does it imply that everything is language? It implies that everything exists purely as a unit in a series. Because if a man doesn't exist until the word man exists, the word man can only exist if the word woman exists, right? So you're reducing things to a unit in a system. You can't give anything self-existence. Nothing can just exist on its own. Everything exists insofar as it participates in some serial system of language. There's no outside. On page 70, he writes, truth as representation and representation as truth indicates an ontological scenario in which the stuff that makes up the world is merely a state of affairs, at once devoid of autonomous existence, uniqueness, and substantiality, and so radically unsituated at an ontological level as to be available for limitless reproduction, or better, corresponding exactly to its own reproduction. So a thing exists only when it can reproduce itself only when it perceives itself as its own reproduction. So measure and unit are the ways that you, first of all, things that exist in a series are units in the series. They're interchangeable by definition, right? Because th what they are is purely a function of where they are situated in the, in the series. And secondly, the only way you can assess or judge units in a system is through measurement. You can only measure where is this thing positioned in the system. So he's basically saying that Things have been replaced with states of affairs, and states of affairs are basically just permutations or configurations of units in a system. Yeah. Anything is interchangeable with anything else at bottom. And that results, what does that do to us as humans? Well, when we humans start to internalize this system, this way of thinking, 
we start to perceive ourselves as measurable units in a system. And then we become what he calls abstract general entities. The abstract general entity is the unit that is still able to perceive itself as existing, but can't account for its own existence except within the logic of the system in which it appears. He writes on page 85, he writes, I can claim my individuality only as an abstract general entity. The person has disappeared. There's no such thing as a person. There are only bundles of qualities, let's call them, right? Intersectional or otherwise, which together form a kind of entity which asserts its existence to the degree that it can insert itself into a language. There are some very down-to-earth expressions of this in our daily life. Anytime somebody says, speaking as an X, speaking as a white male Canadian, you are allying yourself with some general entity and your utterances are taken to be the utterances of that general entity. When you speak as something, what, what actually happens in that moment where you say, speaking as an X? Well, there's different ways of, of understanding that. I'm talking to you as your father. Yes. The minute right. you have archetypes. Speaking yeah. as a parent. Yeah. You could speak as a member of a group and still be an individual, of course. That's always the kind of like juggling act we all have to play. It's like, to what extent right. am I a self and to what extent am I a member of this group? But since we don't have a concept of the person and the self anymore, there's very little for us to hold on to in the way of asserting some singular, unique, created self. What we do is we build an image of ourselves based on the various qualities that we exhibit. So the various groups we belong to. Well, it's like the digital doppelganger that we were talking about in the episode on Abeba. Birhane's impossibility of automating ambiguity, Yeah, where one of the points that she makes in that essay is how we are constantly having a kind of a digital double of ourselves constructed by the very sort of data farming mechanisms of all sorts of online entities. This version of me that isn't me, but it's the bundle of measurable preferences as you know expressed in like the fact that i was shopping for a pair of shoes and so like i'm a guy who wears size 13 shoes right i'm a guy so i wear men's shoes or where i'm a guy who wears nike (laughs) yeah exactly and it gets more and more specific product choices and that digital doppelganger follows you around and it is that entity to which online marketers and advertisers are pitching their stuff and are interacting with. We have a sort of notion of like, okay, well, that's a double. That's not me. But the point is that under the domain of absolute language, that is you. Yeah, there's nothing else. There's nothing else but the language used to describe you, the various characterizations of you to be placed in the series, like, you know, what size shoe do you wear? What brand shoe do you wear, male or female, and blah, blah, blah. And you can see this just in the way that... For example, if you go on Reddit and any kind of gear heavy Reddit, like if you go to a gun subreddit, people will have user flares where they list their guns, the guns that are the ones in their possession or the guns that they feel 
say something about them. And you see this in all kinds of, now I'm forgetting all the really good examples of it, but you see examples of it all over the place where you can set user flares to articulate your product choices, which are really for the purposes of Reddit space, they're the markers of who you are. Uh, You can see this in, don't mean to offend anybody by this, I'm not saying that pronouns don't matter, but like people who are putting pronoun preferences in their Twitter bios, for example, that's a small example of this way in which you're building a digital self from various positions within various series. Exactly. Gender series, race series. And Campania points out also the ever-proliferating categories, especially when it comes to sexuality. So for instance, I learn new categories all the time, again, largely through surfing Reddit. Sapiosexual, for example, which means that you're turned on by smart people. Right. And we could say, well, human sexuality and human identity generally, is a spectrum. And I think the positive way to think of spectrum is in a Galusian way or a Bergsonian way, where we understand it as undifferentiated, smooth space. There's no sense of a digital unit segmentation. We're taking the rainbow, and we're not unweaving the rainbow. We're not breaking it up into little quanta, little units, we're sort of in the analog world where it's kind of this smooth transition from one color or one sexual identity to another. That would be the true understanding to me of the spectrum model of human sexuality. But the whole point of Technic is because of its emphasis on measure and unit, it's like, no, 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 that's not good enough. Some kind of Bergsonian undifferentiated smoothness, not good enough. We got to find unit measures. We've got to break it up and we have to come up with a name for each one and each one. It's a position that you can activate in your life. And the point is not what category you come up with to describe yourself or which product you, which gun you decide you're going to put in your Reddit user flare. It's not the point that you're choosing this or that. It's that you're participating in a system whereby you're always rehearsing the discrete categories by which your selfhood can exist in online space. Yeah, that's the key word. It's a question of existence. And it's understandable, as weird as it can seem to see the proliferation of these subcategories, not just in the realm of sexuality, although that's a very important one, but in all kinds of places, you'll find that type of segmentation going on. And you wonder, why is that happening? I mean, it seems to me that the fact is that everyone is singular, unique, and unrepeatable. So everyone will express themselves on every level, in every possible area, in some more or less absolutely new way, you know, because we're not reducible to, um, I mean, that's my own perspective. We're all so fundamentally new as events, as beings in the world, that no category could fully capture what someone is in any one area. I mean, we can do that heuristically, we can do that pragmatically, we have to, but to essentialize that, it to me is always a mistake. You're always more than any tag or label or flair can express. So you wonder, why is this happening? Well, it's because since existence is omitted from the logic of technic, the only way for anything to be is to be expressed, to be represented. Representation becomes the, the sine qua non of existence. It's the only form of existence we have access to is essence. 
What is essence? It's what something is. What does that mean? It means what can be named, what can be placed in a serialized system, what can be expressed through language. So therefore, you'll have an endless proliferation because of the the fact that we are not reducible to categories. The proliferation will go on infinitely, and you'll have more and more and more categories ad infinitum. And that, that brings us to the last emanation, not that we've been going through them systematically, but life is vulnerability. The point is that once you realize subconsciously, just by existing in this reality system, that you don't exist unless you're represented, that nothing exists without being represented, you start to feel vulnerable. Because what's the alternative to being represented? It's non-existence. Mm-hmm. To deny your representation is to deny your existence. So therefore, the looming threat in the logic of technic is an absolute nothingness. So life becomes vulnerability. We are all vulnerable. We are all just teetering on the edge of nothingness if we can't find ourselves represented as abstract general entities in the system. And since, and this is the the rift in things, since we are all infinite persons and not abstract general entities, we feel this reality as a source of dread. Yes. There's something in us that is ineffable. And that's at that bottom level, Malkut, right? When everything's been reduced mm-hmm. to language, that the kernel of magic appears. The spark of magic is the fact that despite all of our cutting up, all of our slicing and dicing of reality into abstract categories, there still remains something that cannot be reduced. And that is life as ineffability or the ineffable as life. And it's the first mm-hmm. central principle, the equivalent of absolute language of magic. And so magic begins when you realize that there is something in this world, there is something in me, there is something in the other, there is something in the real that is ineffable, i.e. impossible to capture in a linguistic system, absolutely impossible to capture in a linguistic system. So once you realize that there's that, you can build a new way of being based on that. And that's really close Mm -hmm. to what like you and I were talking about in our episode on radical mystery. Yeah. You know, he calls it the ineffable because he wants to emphasize the fact that it's not reducible to language. It's yeah. not effable. And for very good reasons that like he also is learned in especially a Sufi tradition of mysticism and in traditional understandings of cosmology, the top, you know, whether it's like Kether and in Kabbalism or however we want to call it, is beyond language. That's always the thing that yeah. people say is beyond representation, beyond yeah. language. So there's Excellent historic and philosophical precedent for that sort of thing. Yes. I will say that you have, in your characterization of what happens down in the very bottom emanation where the original force of the first hypostasis, absolute language, has spent itself, uh, human life as vulnerability, more needs to be said about that. Because the way you characterized it, you're like, you know, it's down there. And I think you're quite right about this. Down there at the bottom is like the point at which this feeble light of technique is shining upon like reality as it actually is. And it turns out that reality as it actually is, isn't the same as the sort of digital picture right. that technique has made it out to be. And so on the level of individual psychology, on an existential level, <laughs> you have moments in your day where you're going about being an abstract general entity and relating to other abstract general entities and you know, just like living your technic life. 
But then there will always be these moments, like, for example, moments of um, hunger or pain. This is a point that um, the Frankfurt School philosophers, you know, Adorno, Horkheimer, Marcuse, like to point out that even in the most totalizing systems, can't entirely expunge pain. It can't make you not be an organism capable of feeling pain, either physical or emotional. And indeed, Campania points out that down here at the very bottom, the thing that sparks the transformation into whatever is next is a howl of pain, a right. realization of pain, a realization that on some level, everything you believe is wrong, that there is some way in which reality is refractory to all of the tools that you have to deal with it. Yeah, absolutely. So by the very logic of the reality system, we're reduced to what's been called bare life. And, right. and, and so you can imagine us as denizens of the technical world, as um, figures in a Francis Bacon painting, right? Broken, yeah. you're usually contained in some kind of framing structure, screaming. Nice. And from there, because the very fact that there's still something left there writhing and screaming, it is writhing and screaming precisely because it cannot be captured by the language system. And so it is something teetering on the verge of non-existence. Mm -hmm. Beckett is another great writer who wrote about this condition. You're teetering right on the edge of non-existence. And yet the fact that you can scream in terror means that you still exist. What, it's actually yeah. good news. <laughs> what exists? What exists? It's not something that can be codified. It's not something that can be semiotically captured. Therefore, it is something ineffable. And that yeah. something ineffable becomes the kind of mustard seed from which magic will grow. Except I feel like one shortcoming of Campania's way of expressing the stuff is that he doesn't offer enough attention to that moment of enantiodromia, of reversal. Mm. Like you are focusing on that moment. It's a kind of naked lunch moment, right? A moment where everybody becomes aware of what is at the end of everybody's fork. Yeah. When reality as it is, without the bafflement and occlusions of technic, when reality itself just simply asserts itself in its mute thereness, the reaction could be a kind of reversal. Enantiodromia is that force, cosmogonic force, that drives the I Ching that Carl Jung was so interested in. The idea that any force or potentiality pushed to its ultimate extent will actually reverse, will flip into its opposite. And I think that that is the properly magical way to understand the cosmology that Campania is showing us is the idea that down there, at, as that reality that Technic has done everything possible to occlude, simply past a certain point cannot be hidden anymore. That scream of pain can reverse the movement of Technic into a movement towards magic. Yeah. That might be the only place in this emanationist chain where a little magical door like the door at the back of the wardrobe in Narnia might appear that would allow you exit into a different reality construal. Although I think it's hinted at in this book, Campania is more interested in the idea of how these emanationist chains will reconstitute themselves at that last final level so that that descending energy gets all the way to the bottom and then 
bounces it, like ricochets back upwards. Yeah. He even uses that language at least once in the book, a sense of a kind of reverse arc, which is not an antiodromia, it's going back to the beginning. And so there is in this book sometimes, to me, a feeling of like that the parallel or mirrored cosmoses, cosmi, <laughs> of technique and magic that they mirror one another, but there's a little bit of a never the twain shall meet aspect to them, that each one is doing its own circular thing where you go down from the top down to the bottom and bounce back up to the top. But the question that I had as I was reading this book was, yeah, but how do they talk to one another? Because I believe that they do talk to one another. But they can't. But yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I agree and, with you. And my suspicion is that that Campania is temperamentally a bit more Manichaean. Maybe this is the Zen dude in me that I can sense a certain Manichaeanness where he doesn't want to get the ineffable all mixed up and polluted by Technic. He doesn't want to get his peanut butter mixed in with his chocolate. So he looks at these as basically parallel systems in mirror to one another, running their loops, doing their things. And then the question becomes, well, then how within the system do you jump from one to the other? Uh, where does the magic door appear? Where is the principle of the egress? I don't feel like he has a satisfying theoretical answer to this, but that's me. I do remember reading a passage where he describes pretty much what I was trying to say there, that when life becomes pure vulnerability, that is where the ineffable reveals itself. So I, I think that that is in there. Maybe it's not emphasized enough. Or maybe I'm reading into it, but... No, I think you're right. I think it is there, but, but... But the thing is that the way you're framing it, which would be the way I would frame it, the two would make a kind of cycle, right? Yes. It would be, be gyres turning around each other. A lemniscate, like a figure eight Mobius strip. You know what I mean? Absolutely. They would be like I, it, and I, thou, which are yeah. inseparable from one another. And I think ultimately that's my biggest criticism of this book, is that what he's giving us in the second half isn't an alternative reality system just basically the interior, the inside of Technic. I believe that magic has been, the way he describes it, and we should probably talk, describe that first. We'll get back to it. Let's just quickly mm. describe the, the second half of the book. And <laughs> I don't want this to sound bad, but it seems like, you know how he talks about the emanations degrade, you know, the emanations mm -hmm. of the one degrade as they go down. Yeah. Well, I think there's something going on there in his writing as well, because <laughs> the, the magic half of the book is a lot more obscure, I find, than the technic. Technic is pristinely clear, like limpid to me. But magic, sometimes I'm like, are you trying to fit this shit into your specular system? Because <laughs> um, he wants everything to reflect everything else, right? So what happens is that mm. the emanations of magic, which begin not with absolute language, but with the ineffable as life, that's the first emanation. Ineffability is the first emanation, or the, 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 not even the first emanation, the one right, in the magic system, it has to correlate or it has to reflect the last life as vulnerability, right? Life as vulnerability becomes the ineffable as life. It's a perfectly specular system where the two hierarchies will reflect one another, not just that in the sense that you can place them side to side and like make straight lines between each one, but you can diag make diagonal lines. The last should reflect the first of the one. And the second should reflect the fourth. Yeah, the fourth of the one. So, you know, so it's, it's like a perfectly specular system. You can probably find 
his diagram somewhere online, or we can maybe put it. In the- oh, and it goes deeper than that because the shape of the book also mirrors that exact structure. Yeah, exactly. And he's very self-conscious about that. And so, like among other things, this book is a, a virtuoso performance. Yeah, to the extent that it sometimes arouses my suspicion, like it feels a little too tidy. Yeah, there's a there's a a sense of like contrivance, maybe sometimes. Uh, We can get to that. But anyways, the way magic works is that it starts with the ineffable and then it emanates from there. And we get the new magic hypostases, which are the person and the person opposes the abstract general entity in the technic Mm -hmm. system. Then we get the symbol, which opposes the unit in technic. And then we get meaning, which opposes measure. You can kind of follow the logic here. It's kind of beautiful. And then finally, you have paradox, which opposes absolute language. And whereas Technic tried to eliminate existence, magic tries to find a balance between essence and existence. Because Campania actually defines reality as the space between the poles of existence and essence. And since Technic is trying to eliminate that space by eliminating existence, magic must find a new balance. And he actually, at the beginning of the book, he says, sometimes there needs to appear a shaman, a magician who can weave reality together out of essence and existence. And he has some harsh uh, words for one possible answer to the technic problem, which is quite popular, which is the Advaita kind of like Eastern spiritual answer. Right. You know, and he says the problem with that is that it does precisely the opposite of technic just as problematic, it tries to eliminate essence and reduce everything to pure right. existence. So that's not going to work. So he needs, he proposes magic as a kind of way of weaving essence and existence together in a constructive and productive way. Which I actually totally agree with. I, Absolutely. I agree with that move. And him talking about extremely, like minimalistically non-dual traditions like Advaita, Vedanta, or, you know, Zen, at least some of its expressions. Some of the schools, yeah. um, yeah. Can be very much that way. The complete derogation of essence. He argues that that ends up being the same move that Technique makes. You're just killing one side of reality so that only one side can be all triumphant. And I agree with him on this. And this is something, I actually have a piece that I've written very much for the drawer. One of the things I say in that essay is uh, that the value of magic for spiritual practice, for me as a Zen practitioner who has some magic under his belt, is that it does keep that tension in play. Exactly. Between the mixed up, impure world of essence um, and the unspeakable and divine world of existence, both sides kind of need each other. And if you are on a spiritual path, you need both. I believe, and this is so. I actually, to me, comes up with a very real argument for magic as a place on a spiritual path. That being said, such considerations seem to be far from Campania. One way that you can tell this is a book written for that intellectual world I was talking about earlier—that very large sphere of academic, para-academic, near-academic, quasi-academic life is that he, although he says nice things about self-help books, unusual enough in an academic publication, he does in fact rather avoid the self-help register in all but the most abstract ways. There's no actual mention of 
things you can do, practices, or even the sense that practice might be something you would want to do, that there are things that are associated with magical traditions that are aimed specifically at triumphing over exactly the sort of spiritual malaise that he is talking about in this book. It's abstract. It's a very abstract book. There aren't a lot of people in it. There are sources, historical voices, and so on, but you are not very prominently featured in it, or a prospective potential you that comes into existence as you read the pages of the book. That is one thing that makes it very different from the kinds of books that you will find in a metaphysical shop or on the spirituality shelves at a bookstore. Going back to this idea of of the impure world of essence and then the pure world of existence, one of the tricks that the magician who solves the problem needs to do is to bring the pure, quote unquote, into essence and the impure into existence. You could say something like Mm -hmm. that, right? The little dot and the yin and yang. Because it'd be natural to look at the model that we've described here, crudely summarized technique, and say, well, the problem is language. Get rid of language. Everything is ineffable, therefore language is a denial of reality. Some readings of Bergson, you might end up with something like that, that the intellect just screws everything up, that Zure, the pure duration, pure existence is the good, and the minute, you know, it's like William Burroughs, the word virus, the minute language comes in, everything goes to shit. But that's not what he thinks, he thinks magic can do something else. What magic does is by extinguishing itself in the idea of, in the hypothesis of paradox, the ineffable transforms language into something new. Language becomes a way of engaging with existence. Language is no longer trying to eliminate existence, but is engaging with it. And he has some really interesting ways of talking about that in the sections on on the symbol and on paradox. And my sense was that it's something like poetic language. Poetic language does not do what ordinary discursive language does. What it does is it restores things to their symbolic, i.e. ineffable nature. 
And so it yeah. brings out the existence of things by naming them. So it's this, this yes. interplay of essence and, and existence that is much more conducive to like a flourishing life for persons as opposed to abstract general entities. And this is one place where I think his emanationist model works really, really well mm. to establish an idea, a basic fundamental principle, the ineffable life. He quotes one Islamic thinker who has a kind of twist on the emanationist model where the universe or the cosmos is something like a moving current of colored molten glass. Like imagine a liquid glass that is sort of swirling and moving, always in motion, dynamic around the ineffable, that fundamental principle, call it God or life or the ineffable, whatever. And that light shines through this glass, but you can imagine how like there are going to be some parts of this pool of molten glass. Maybe you could imagine like a knob that reaches out of the sort of globular mass and kind of hardens and darkens. And maybe that is like further away from the light and it's denser and darker. And so very little of that light gets through. That is an object in the world. Let's say that's mixed martial arts or something. <laughs> this degenerate enthusiasm of mine that I never stop apologizing for and trying unsuccessfully to explain my interest in. You know, maybe mixed martial arts is pretty far from that divine light, but they're still part of reality. And so it still has deeply buried within it a little flicker, a little glimmer of that light, right? But we can imagine other kinds of things that might exist in the universe, like poetry, for instance, through which that light shines vividly and brightly and fully. And so we can imagine different kinds of language, the language of a UFC press release on the one hand and the work of a great poet on the other as being utterances that are shot through with light, but in a very different ways. This emanationist model here really comes into its own because it gives us a way of understanding poetry or fine writing, art, literature, as Machen would say. Mm -hmm. In a way, you could, you could conform a lot of what Campania is saying about these middle emanations of magic with Machen's theory, yeah. where Machen is, says, you know, I don't really care what kind of object we're talking about, whether it's a pe you know, penny dreadful. I mean, it's, uh, Machen's theory could be applied to pulp, trash stratum stuff like Clark Ashton Smith's Zothique stories, for example. Mm -hmm. We could look at an object like that and say, on the one hand, there's some trashy shit appeared in pulp mags written by people who were just writing content. They were just getting stuff out as fast as they could to get paychecks so they could pay their rent and blah, blah, blah. And a more old-fashioned idea of what is and isn't literature would say, well, that's not literature because it's not on elevated themes or whatever. And Machen would say, doesn't matter. However humble its origin, if there's something of that, uh, what he, he calls it ecstasy, but we could easily just say that light from the source if there's something of that light still glimmering in the depths of it, we call it literature. And thus, this emanationist way of thinking becomes a pretty good way of understanding what is the difference between the language of technic and the language of art. Yeah. And one thing, of course, a technic does is it reduces all art language to technic language, which is one of many reasons why art is in such a bad way at this 
stage in human development. I often feel, by the way, that art is one of those things down on that lowest stratum of technique, that bottom emanation, life is vulnerability, where what has not been assimilated to technique and could never be assimilated to technique becomes an object of horror mm. to subjects of technique. Art is down there as well. That aspect of art that it remains stubbornly unassimilable to the logic of technique becomes an object of horror and detestation to the citizens of technique. It needs to be contained, yeah. yeah or destroyed utterly, yeah. which is yeah. how you end up with supposedly progressive people calling for signing petitions for the destruction of a work of art. It's yeah. happened at least once in recent years. It's interesting to psychologize our anti-art tendencies in this day and age. But quite apart from that, though, I think that this is where Campania's emanationist system kind of comes into its own. It actually really gives, I mean, it gives us a lot in a lot of different parts of the book, but I really like that way that he's establishing a kind of Machen-esque or Mackin. I always fuck it up the name of fucking Mackin. God damn it. It makes me so mad. Um, Mackin-esque. Yeah, Mackin-esque. Uh, Machination. <laughs> uh, anyway, I, I feel like I've been going round and round. Oh, no, I love his it. Point I love it. Bit. You can see how simply by listing off his hypostases and how one replaces the other, you can get a sense of what he's saying. And I'll just read them out quickly. So, absolute language gives way to paradox. Measure gives way to meaning. The unit gives way to the symbol. The abstract general entity gives way to the person. And life as vulnerability gives way to life as ineffability. So you can see, if you've been listening to this podcast, all these kind of terms will resonate with other things that we've said before and probably will have its own resonances for you as a person. You can actually see how, oh, I'd rather live in the world with, you know, in column B than in column A, right? Right. I'd rather be a person than... Uh, an abstract general entity. An abstract general entity. I'd rather live among symbols than units. I'd rather embrace paradox than to insist on absolute language, you know? Uh, yeah. Okay. So one of the weird things, though, about this book is that it felt anticlimactic. And he kind of says it. At the end, it's like, okay, well, what do you do? Because, you know, you were saying that he praises self-help, but he doesn't offer much in terms of uh, praxis. What can we do? What should we do? In fact, his solutions at the end are somewhat kind of impotent feeling to me. Yeah. He has one that's which is secrecy, which is basically that you should practice what the Muslims in Spain during uh, the Reconquista and the Inquisition would do, which is that you practice what they called um, taquilla and kitman. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, which was the permission given to Muslims to pretend they were Christians, you know, to, in order to avoid getting caught by the inquisitors or like shipped out or killed. Basically, you should just hide your light under a bushel, right? And practice this magic. We should say, before I go any further, that he doesn't get into magical practice in this book. Yeah. He, what he means by magic is basically emanationist traditions, esoteric traditions of, that are rooted in kind of like Western mysticism, Western in the broadest sense, including yeah. Islamic traditions and all that. He's not getting into like... Uh, magic in the Crowleyan sense. Yeah, there's just about zero magic with a K in this book. Yeah, exactly. So um, 
but you to should... the extent that makes me sometimes wonder if he just gave magic as a name for the thing he wanted to write about. And I'm not going to be so cynical as to say it's a kind of marketing label or whatever. That would be cynical. But um, he keeps saying, well, magic does this. And within magic, there's blah. And I'm like, well, who's magic? Yeah, not, I th- not magic as recognized by any magical practitioner. And we're, we might say, well, you know, this isn't that kind of book, which fair enough. It's a book for an academic audience. That being said, though, it's a little bit unsatisfying to be put off by appeal. So like, well, this is how it works in magic when, although he certainly seems to understand quite a bit of the Sufi mystical tradition, there's actually no magic in it. But there is, through the Sufi mystical tradition, there is a lot of attention paid to, broadly speaking, the Western esoteric tradition. So, right. um, yeah. So, so that's what he means by magic. And fair enough. I mean, that's uh, okay. But I agree with your what you're saying. He might have called it some cool uh, word that you could spin out of ineffable. <laughs> Technic and ineffability would not have had the same ring. <laughs> no, exactly. And I get it. I get it. He does have a, a section where he explains himself there and he talks about the Magia, the, the Persian Magi who were are at the root of the word magic and how magic is that which is rejected, that which is ignored, that which is pushed aside in a system. So it's going to be what the kernel of irreducible suchness that will rise out of technique. So I get it. Mm-hmm. Now, but, but the, my point is that his solutions at the end feel a little bit weak. It doesn't seem to resound with the revolutionary call that a situation as bad as technique would warrant. And I think basically, and this would be, there's, there's a couple of things I want to say about it. It's that I don't think that he's offering us an alternative reality system. I think all he's doing is giving a new expression, a new formulation, a new articulation of the romantic resistance to rationalism that's been going on now for 300 years. Mm-hmm. I think that if you look at the basic sentiment in Blake, uh, or even in Rousseau, or certainly in 19th century romantic literature, it's basically this idea of the singular resisting codification, categorization, reduction to, you know, the dark, you know, subjection to the dark satanic mills and all that stuff. So I, I, I don't think the whole counterculture, 20th century counterculture, you could just check off all the ideas in the magic section. You could correlate with something that the counterculture in the broad sense, the spiritual movements of the 20th century have been saying. This is just basically the classic resistance to capitalism. Mm-hmm. It's to go to develop interiority, to express individuality in the face of collectivization, not just capitalism, but communism as well. The whole kind of modern reduction of everything to a, a position in a system. Like he draws on, when he talks about the symbol, he's drawing on, I think he mentions Gadamer and others who've written about. So I, did, I just don't think there's a replacement here, but more like a reaction to mm-hmm. uh, an irritation right? Mm -hmm. A constant irritation. I also believe that he's operating fully from within the logic of technic. If you think about Plotinus or the Kabbalists and their idea of the one or God, their idea of the one, the very concept of emanation only makes sense if there is a transcendent one. But he's rejecting transcendence in the sense that he doesn't talk about God or the one. He basically talks about a kind of imminent emanationism yeah. that could take multiple forms. 
So that's right. I agree. It, it could be technic, or it could be the one, or it could be God, or it could be magic, or it could be the ineffable. The point is that the function of the one in his system is purely positional. Yeah. It's like whatever occupies that system will determine how things go, but it could be anything. And it's up to us to decide what we put there. Right. That's technical thinking through and through. Yep. That's Whereas true. Whereas a Kabbalist would say, I have no choice but to believe this. This is the yes. way reality is structured. Everything goes to God. And God is not a type of unit I've decided to put in that position. That's the way a modern technical person thinks. God is that which is, that which is. So it, yeah. it, it's being precedes any definition to a Kabbalist. Mm -hmm. It's beyond definition. Therefore, there can be nothing put there in its place. Mm. So what you'd have and the way that you can interpret his book to make sense within a more traditional emanationist frame or even just a more traditional theological frame would be to say, well, technic is what Northrop Fry might have called a satanic parody of the real structure of reality. Yeah. It's the result of a moral failure on the part of, of a particular group of humans, i.e. Western humans, to stay true to the source of the real and to put themselves in that position. Therefore, you would get technic. And that's a completely different way of looking at it. It's not like, oh, technic is one arbitrary reality system that could be replaced with any number of other arbitrary reality systems, which seems to be his position, right? Although I think sometimes you get the sense that that's not his position at all. But it's that there is a, a structure to reality, and it may or may not be emanationist, but it is rooted in the ineffable. And what we've done is denied this and tried to build our tower, you know, outside the garden. And then the, the myth unfolds as, it, as you would expect it to, you know, the myth of the Tower of Babel. We've basically ensconced ourselves in a universe in which we see our own reflection everywhere. It's not a bad reality system. It's a bad move within the only possible system, which would be the system in which the one exists before all things. Sometimes he seems to be hinting at that, and maybe he's trying to be diplomatic and draw in theory people, and by the end, hoping that they will kind of clue into a bigger mystery. But the very phrase, alternative reality system, is not something you would expect to find in an old Sufi or Kabbalistic text. It's, it's yeah. a term of our time. It's a technic term. <laughs> That's a brilliant insight. And yeah. I think you're right. I think it probably does have something to do with the intended audience, the publishing reality of this book. Yeah. You need to kind of frame things in ways that will work with your audience. Being able to say, like, we can choose to place this reality system in this position, or we could swap it out, but let's go with this. Whereas an actual esoteric book would absolutely not make that threshold move. This creates all kinds of problems. For one thing, what is the warrant for your authority in coming up with the system at all? For a traditional esoteric book, the warrant is the tradition and the degree to which you are creative within that system, but also in some sense faithful to it. But then for a modern academic, what is the warrant for your claims? Why should we accept them or entertain them at any rate? It's individual performance. It's your brilliance as a scholar. There's no necessary relationship to reality, but I can make it stick through the brilliance of my performance by being a brilliant academic, by being a, a, you know, a philosopher of the first water, which I believe Campania is. And I'm not saying that that's an illegitimate framework or move. I'm just backing you up when you say that this has very much to do with 
Technic, that this is a project conceived within Technic. There's a passage I noted on page 186 where he has a, a quote from Pavel Florensky, who writes, anything over which the eye rests, everything has its own hidden meaning. It has a double life, a substance that is other and over-empirical. Everything partakes to another world, and such other world leaves its mark on everything. And so that's like a poetic way of expressing what I was talking about with the molten glass. So Campania writes, here perhaps lies the greatest difference between a platonic understanding of magic as a means to transcend the world and the understanding of magic that is developed in this volume. While Florensky presents magic in reference to another world, with which magic can connect us, this volume suggests instead that magic is a world-making force that allows us to be at the same time inside the world and outside from any world. Magic, as it is described in this book, differs from Platonism in that it doesn't suggest a hyper-Uranian world beyond this world where the truth, in scare quotes, authentically lies. More neoplatonically, it suggests instead that within the world there lies a dimension that altogether escapes both worldliness and truth, thus transcending the very notion of transcendence. There's a certain amount of philosophical jiggery-pokery going on in that paragraph. We could do a whole show on that paragraph. <laughs> yeah. 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 But what I wrote in the margin is that that does not depart from the academic convention of subjectivizing everything and maintaining an imminent frame. Yeah. Permitting us to continue with our product choice. Exactly. There's no other world that has a claim upon us. So we can feel free to continue to occupy or activate different subject positions in our reading or in our lives. The, the one thing that we can't do and must do is to fall on our knees. And by fall on your knees, I don't mean like, I, what I mean is quite literally come to the point where you not only can you, but you must acknowledge something actually ineffable, not something sayably ineffable, not the fact that there's an aspect of all things I can't express through language, but the fact that there is something beyond all this that is as real as anything below the abyss among us. So like, right. and that would require a leap that technic can't make. And to the extent that I would, I'll just say it, to the extent that Campania remains atheist, okay, and I'm not having, I'm not saying this from any particular camp, I'm saying in a very general way. Like from a Roman Catholic camp or a Buddhist yeah, camp yeah, or whatever. Yeah, it doesn't matter. He will not be able to make that leap. And only that leap can undo the, quote unquote again, satanic parody of technic, using Northrop Fry's term. The fact that technic is a kind of a mockery of a real structure that we can't deal with. And this, to me, explains the absolute absence of a moral dimension in this book. There is a political thrust in this book, right? Often it's the environment is brought up as the big thing that we need to fix. But there's no real moral core to the book. There's no real moral reason why this needs to be done. Because you can't account for the moral without making that leap. Yeah. You simply cannot. And so you're stuck saying, I would love this world to be this way. But that's the extent of it. Yeah. It's another position. It's another position in an infinite series of positions. Mm -hmm. And so it feels weak at the end for that reason, because it can't make that leap. 
And another thing is, I from a more intellectual perspective, I would say that I, there were times in this book I was like, oh my god, I feel so close to this because I'm working on groundwork for philosophy of magic. It's very closely linked in some ways. It's engaging with it in different so, ways. So, so we got the narcissism of small differences here. Well, yeah, maybe or maybe the narcissism of huge differences. But he does touch on this at the beginning. He says, I'm going to adopt an, an emanationist model. An alternative would be a creationist model. That would be not Ibn Arabi, but Al-Ghazali, right? Al-Ghazali was the Islamic philosopher who first realized what David Hume would later come to see is that causation itself is rooted in the acausal, that the causation has no necessity. Therefore, according to Al-Ghazali, any change having taken place in this world was the direct act of God. Like God had to be there for every causal change. He had to insert himself. Everything that happens, since it didn't have to happen, takes its root in the spontaneous creative act of God. A creationist model, I think, would do better. And why, why do I say that? Because a creationist model, or as I'm calling it these days, a brutalist model of metaphysics, would allow us to honor that moment, which I think is so important in his book, where at the moment of bare life, at the moment of the, the howl of pain, something appears. It would enable us to honor that, which I think is the, the, the magic moment in his book, without requiring us to buy into an essentially causal emanationist framework. Because I don't reject the emanationist framework, but to me, the emanationist framework itself rests on a deeper creationist position. And I think any Kabbalist would agree that before you have emanations, you must have the infinite power of the one to create anything at all. And that's, again, that's the leap that the book can't make because it remains too committed to the ontology of technique. I just want to clarify, when you say creationist, this is not creationism. It has anything to do with, like, the creationist museum in Kentucky. <laughs> no, 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 no. Dinosaurs died out 6,000 years ago and shit like that. Creationism is basically the idea that causation is always, deep down, creation. And creation is out of nothing. The world is not just simply a kind of mechanism that follows a set of laws, but rather a kind of artwork that appears out of an infinite creative potential that comes out into being as it is without there being some causal reason for that happening other than it did. Yeah. Yeah. So it, the, it, it, your, your brutalist theory. Exactly. Well, it's, I mean, it's Al-Ghazali, Malbranche, uh, David Hume, Mayasu, Chesterton. Those are the guys that I think have articulated this very powerfully. And those are the guys that, that for my part, for what it's worth, I'm kind of working with to get out of Technic. Because I do think his analysis of Technic is absolutely brilliant. Brilliant. Uh, like, absolutely brilliant. Yeah. And I will agree with the general outlines of his idea of like, the magic cosmogony will save your ass. Yeah. What he's calling magic that will save your ass if you approach it in the right spirit. We don't have any guidance in this book on, on how to approach it, but perhaps merely pointing the door is enough. In fact, I think to be fair, it is enough. He did quite enough in oh, this God. book. He did a lot. And simply giving persons who like to read continental philosophy and social theory a reason to start questioning the assumptions that undergird our lives and the possibility that magic 
whatever that word might mean, whoever is defining it, mm-hmm. might represent some radical alterity, a completely different scheme, a completely different principle by which a life can be properly led. I absolutely 100% agree with him on that. Same and here. I view myself as somebody standing shoulder to shoulder with Campania. We have the same enemies. <laughs> we have the same goals, more or less. And I don't want to leave things on a down note where it's sort of like, a, uh, well, nice try, buddy, but no, wait till you get our book. Our book will be so much better, or whatever. You know, no, it's just it's more a question of different ways of approaching the problem than one way being better. Yeah. Well, for me, it becomes, among other things, a really interesting meta cogitation on wh- what is it to be a person writing from this situation of total techni. What is it to be an intellectual in an era of techni? What is it to be an intellectual writing in an era of techni who wants to help his or her or their readers? Because I think that is maybe the most important thing that Campania and I and you have in common. It's that this is not just the activation of positions within an infinite series of series. Ultimately, we hear that scream in the depths. We hearken to it, and we care about it, and we care about the people who are suffering. We care about our own suffering, but we care about others as well. And I see Campania, I see us, I see like, you know, Eric Davis, I see Mm -hmm. Victoria Nelson, any number of people who are associated with our show, who we've either had on the show, we've talked to or talked about. And this is actually where I started with the very notion that there would be something called weird studies all the way back in like 2015, 2016, before this was a podcast. And I just wrote a couple of blog posts about what if there's this thing called weird studies, you know, an impossible academic field, impossible because studies already places you on the field of techni and to truly do weird studies, you would have to find a way to get yourself off the ground of techni. And yet, as we found, as I noticed that, for example, UC Davis, uh, I think it was UC Davis, yeah. uh, had a weird studies symposium in the French and Italian program back in the spring. The coinage weird studies is beginning to spread, apparently as a term for academic work used without the irony in, that I initially tried to bake into the concept. That's fine, by the way. I'm not like buttered about that. Like, oh, and they didn't call me. but. For me, that has always been the really interesting question. How do you do what we're doing? And by we, I don't just mean you and me, but the weirdest fear. This is the fundamental problem that we keep coming up against is how do we create systems of learning and education, like a weird studies academy, which sometimes people will joke about. How would such a thing exist? But even leaving aside such institutions, how would a piece of intellectual work from this domain, the weird sphere, look? How would it manage to be authentic to 
the weird to the thing we're talking about, while at the same time articulating something within a space that is always already mapped by techni. It's an open question. I don't know if we're going to come up with an answer to that, but that is something that in a variety of ways keeps coming back again and again in the conversations that we have with other people in the weirdosphere. All I'm saying about Campania is that I'm very proud to call him a brother in arms. Yeah, I agree. You know? And I think that it'd be too easy to underestimate the the impact this book may have and the impact I hope it'll have. I really do think it's a Trojan horse in the world of continental philosophy and cultural theory. Yeah. I think that it makes a certain problem impossible to ignore. And it does connect the modern technical secular tradition, let's say. It does restore it to an awareness of mystery. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening.